Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to In Defense of Ska. We aim to push back on the mainstream's negative perception of the music. Ska deserves the respect genres like punk, hip-hop, and hardcore find among their listeners. And we also like to dive into Ska history. Our host is renowned music journalist and author of the book In Defense of Ska, Aaron Carnes. Ska proliferated in Jamaica in the late 50s and early 60s, but soon evolved into rocksteady and then reggae. But there was a ska revival in England in the late 70s. This time, the music was a deliberate blending of Jamaican music and the punk and post-punk styles that were popular in the UK. These bands, The Specials, The Selector, Madness, The Beat, Body Snatchers and Bad Manners reinvented ska and influenced how it would be played across the world going forward. We now refer to this slice of history as two-tone ska, though two-tone refers to the record label started by Jerry Dammers, keyboardist of the specials. Two-tone ska was overtly political, leftist, anti-racist, and had mixed-race bands. They made a whole generation of kids dance their asses off and think about politics in a new way. Two-tone ska was top 40 music in the UK, Everywhere else, it was a slow burn that would grow into huge ska scenes as the years progressed. To get a full picture of two-tone ska, we speak to Daniel Rachel, author of the definitive two-tone oral history, Too Much Too Young, which releases in the U.S. on March 5th, 2024. And now, joining me is my co-host, veteran ska musician Adam Davis of Omnigon and Link 80. It feels like... uh. You know, for years, a lot of this history went unrecorded and now kind of like your book and a lot of these other books that have been coming out uh, are filling in the gaps. Yeah. Oddly enough, uh, there hasn't been a definitive two-tone oral history yet. The two-tone has been documented in various BBC programs or uh, in other books, but it's always a piece of a larger picture. Um, like there was Reggae Britannica, which kind of discussed the reggae influences of uh, England and the reggae a punk Britannica. But this book, and I'm really happy for it, is strictly about two-tone ska. Yeah. And I mean, the, the genre is super, super important. It doesn't really get the respect it deserves. There's other you know, genres from that time that maybe weren't as succinctly on the right side of history as two-tone ska. Yeah, I mean, like to be frank, I mean, some of these like hipster punk and post-punk bands, which I like, they were they kind of thought it was cool to play with Nazi imagery and fascism. You know, it doesn't look good, you know, looking back, but I mean, you look at Two Tone Scott, these bands were talking about 
fighting racism. They were kicking Nazis out of their shows. I mean, they weren't messing around with that stuff at all. Yeah. Two-Tone Ska in late 70s England is really a moment in pop history unlike any other. So first off, I just want to kind of like explain a little bit who you are. Uh, You've written, how many books have you written at this point? I've written five of my own and a further five that I've co-written. Which do you prefer? (laughs) Uh, Well, hmm. Well, I've got a big ego, so I just want my name on the front cover of every book. <laughs> <laughs> sure, that's understandable. But, you know, subject matter-wise, then it, that that's what drives me to want to be involved in books. So as long as, you know, I don't think I do have a – well, I do have a preference. Yeah, I want, I want it to be mine, mine and mine only. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've read um... – I've read two, aside from your new book, I've read two other books. I've read Walls Come Tumbling Down, which is an excellent, uh, excellent book. Thank you. And Don't Look Back in Anger, which is also great. I'm really proud of those two books. I really am. What I like about both of them is that they're both very expansive in their views of this sort of time period, this piece of culture, uh, maybe things people are thinking of in purely musical um pieces of history but you really go way beyond the music and you and you they have so much context politically and culturally for walls come tumbling down is like for people listening is it, it kind of goes from rock against racism to um um what's what's the sorry it's goes wall rock against racism two-tone and then red wedge which is a kind of a socialist movement in the mid 80s so it really kind of talks about the politics of British music from the, these specific time periods. And then Don't Look Back in Anger on its surface is about Britpop, but it's really about everything around that too, culturally. And um, which just a sidebar, because this is this, this conversation is going to be about your new book. But uh, one of the things that really uh, I didn't really understand about the, that time period and that music, it was that there was a, um, I guess you would say like in the 80s and in, in in the UK, there was sort of a political correct sort of time period, and there were it was being reacted against in the nineties. Was it? Would you say that's kind of how you would put it? Well, it's curious because I didn't. I had no intention of writing a book that was just about Britpop. To my mind, the book is always and is about the phenomena of Cool Britannia. Yeah, Cool Britannia, which I I didn't really fully understand. I didn't really understand the bigger picture of what Britpop was part of. Yeah, exactly. So, 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 to my mind, Cool Britannia covers a range of culture, which is art. Uh, you know, literally artists Tracy Emin, Damien Hirst, and then uh, film, literature, sport, football, the politics of Tony Blair and John Major, and Britpop's just one strand within that story. Um, yeah, yeah. But in many ways, the progression of British culture in the 1980s, which was proactively trying to carry forward ideas of gay rights and um, uh, an equitous status for men and women, uh, just to name two things, took a, a kind of a smack in the face in the 90s, where lad culture threw back seemingly many years of the progression of what was looking good for women and um and many aspects of the 90s just 
you know, excluded people of colour. It was very, very white Cool Britannia. And so on a surface level, yes, I think you're right to say that the 90s was a great, a spirit, uh, had a great spirit and euphoria and positivity that the 80s didn't have, but it um, socially, culturally and perhaps politically took a step backwards. You see, the, the, the reason that was so interesting to me is because the 80s in the US would definitely not be characterized as a progressive time period. It was very regressive here, um, you know, with Reagan and like all of our popular movies were very, very, very much pushed a conservative idea about um, who was cool, who was uncool, what was, you know, the, the jokes about gay people in 80s movies were horrendous, just to say, just to start there and sexist. So if anything, the 90s felt like a push forward progressively for us. No, I mean, I mean, what I guess what I'm saying in the 80s is that those cultural ways of thinking that you're talking about were there within prog progressive forward thinking artists, but it wasn't mm. the wider uh mainstream i mean we had we had um we had reagan's puppet didn't we mrs thatcher here sure, and, yeah. her and her conservative government and and you know the in act in point of fact the majority of britons probably would say they benefited under thatcherism but if you were what but if you were part of those that didn't then you truly suffered and, uh, you know, employment was so desperately high and, you know, kind of the standard of living and the and regressive acts and Clause 28, which made it for, uh, illegal to teach homosexuality as it was labelled then in, um, in schools. You know, there's so many um, repressive laws. Then th th we weren't a country going forward in many respects, but... Um, yeah, I mean, it's just such a big debate, isn't it? We'll go off on a whole different tangent. If we yeah, find it, so. anyways, I just want to say that I found that book's really, both those books are very interesting. Thank um, you. A lot to think about, yeah. Um, and also, before we get into uh, Too Much Too Young, um, you're also, you, you are, so are a musician. You have a history playing in a band, uh, Rachel's Basement in the 90s. Highlight that as well. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I didn't do very much. <laughs> I actually have more success make, releasing a couple of uh solo albums in the in the 2000s but it was nowhere near as good or half as much fun as being the band uh -huh, yeah i watched a little clip of you uh on i don't know what program oh, it was yeah. like a music program yes yeah. where you are being interviewed and you talk about you tell a story about how you went to uh paris to play some solo shows and this you're playing lou reed <laughs> and this guy uh french guy jumps on stage and starts playing with you and, and now he's in the band yeah, <laughs> yeah, the French Mach, French Mach, and we uh, we kind of cement our friendship over Lou Reed. <laughs> I remember that, yeah. So that was a nice little, a nice little story, just to uh, to uh, to to guide us along. <laughs> There's a few like weird details that popped out at me in reading too much too young. Just want to talk about those first, and then we'll kind of get more into the the history, which I think the history is very interesting, especially for anyone. Our audience, which is largely a U.S. audience, I think understanding the context of two-tone is something that's it's challenging, you know, I think in a way where people mm -hmm. from the U.K. understand a lot of these references and a lot of what and why things happened. 
But um, one, okay, so first detail that popped out to me, uh, John Lennon apparently was a fan of The Selector and specifically the song Too Much Pressure. <laughs> Isn't that a great little story that when he was uh, recording <laughs> in 1980 and he was after a certain sound and he uh, he got his uh, he got his uh, valet to go out and get the selector record isn't that brilliant i just i just obviously been a fan yeah. of the beatles it was just an excuse to get a little beatles reference in there but it doesn't have doesn't have I, I just thought you know the selector don't know that as a band then they're gonna be so thrilled to read it because who doesn't want john lennon to be into their band sure yeah now that's yeah. just a fun little thing really Pumping out too much pressure from the Dakota. Yeah, open those windows and open it out onto the park. Brilliant. The other thing um, you mentioned, is also kind of an aside too, but you mentioned that, that there was a show in Britain called the Black and White Minstrel Show Yeah, that went from 1958 to 1978. Yeah. And this like completely surprised me that there would be a minstrel stuff on tv up till 78 yeah well it's a, it, i mean you you had minstrels in the states didn't you and you know basically white people black painting of black oh yeah i mean i think we yeah. invented it so but i think it wasn't it wasn't happening in, in 1978 you no, know it's, that's it's what i think shocking. the thing that shocked me about it yeah well british television in the 1970s programs like that and a program called Mind Your Language, which is set in a, um, a non-Brits non in a school trying to learn the language of uh, uh, to speak English. And um, there was uh, Sid James, who people may know from the Carry On films, was in sitcoms and Alf Garnet. All these people were openly racist on British television, using language that is not acceptable uh, today, it was kind of shocking then using a kind of a language that would be familiar to a Ku Klux Klan meeting. And that permeated television. And if it was on mainstream television at, um, at you know, um, primetime television slots, uh, primetime, you know, dinner slots, then it was, you can imagine what that was like in the playground, on the streets, in the pub. I mean, Racism was endemic in many ways in Britain post-war, and that is feeds into uh, a strong reason and desire for Jerry Dammers to create two-tone. Let's get into that larger context. One of those is the National Front. So can you explain what the National Front is, who Enoch Powell was, and because it's very important uh, to understand Rock Against Racism and Two-Tone. Yeah. So, uh, well, the National Front were a right-wing organization that advocated um, the policies of Adolf Hitler and the, and the Nazi party that had members that dressed up in Nazi regalia and, um, and questioned the numbers that were exterminated in the death camps um, in Poland and uh, they formed in 1967, um, and then incrementally, uh, all the way through to 1979, um, gained electoral support. So they were winning council seats across 
the country um, and they were putting they were sometimes beating the major political parties in elections into third place or um, and come the next general election in the UK which would be May 1979 the, the election that Margaret Thatcher wins um, they were they intended to put a candidate in every single constituency across Britain, so I think 630 at that point, which therefore meant that they could have party political broadcast on uh, on British television. They were marching the streets in with uh, huge numbers uh, and, and advocating for the repatriation of uh, anybody that wasn't born uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant and uh you know it was it was nazism and um but they were becoming a force to be reckoned with margaret thatcher spoke and used rhetoric that was of the national front in a blatant attempt to woo their support to the conservatives now a member of the conservative government um in 1968 was the minister enoch powell and he made a speech uh, which has infamously become known as the Rivers of Blood, where he pre- predicted that in 20 years' time that the black man would have the whip hand um, over the white man in this country. And he again wanted a repatriation of of all the people that ironically he and his government had invited from the Caribbean islands uh, uh, in the late 40s and early 50s to come to Britain as British citizens to help revive the economy and work in areas like transport on the buses. Um, So that was an incendiary speech, racist ultimately, and he was discredited in in, in later years. And so, yeah, the the backdrop of two-tone is marches on the streets of neo-Nazis, right-wing fascists, uh, gaining political support and and wooing a youth uh, a young youth generation to the ideology of fascism are you able to break down also sort of the so so skinheads in the 60s is a um is a mu- movement or is a fashion maybe you could say cult, subculture of a uh, working class white kids who are not really driven by an ideology, but just um, a love of this music and fashion. But some of them become co-opted by this National Front sort of movement. Yeah, I mean, skinheads come, they, they begin to really uh, become a recognizable cult in, in around 1969, particularly as, um, as Scar evolves to Rocksteady, becomes reggae. reggae and um, hmm. and there was a racist element from when I speak to people. Uh, I remember swing to Dave Ruffy from the Ruts and um, Jerry Dammers, and there were racist elements where these skinheads would particularly go out and in the vernacular, an offensive vernacular of the time, would go Paki bashing, which is to find people of um, Indian origin, Pakistani or- origin, and, um, well, in some cases, murder. and um, and that isn't to say that all skinheads were like that, and they and they they absolutely um, can't be singularly defined as racist. It was it, there were racist elements in the same way as I know these movements get 
defined as working class in the same way as two-tone does. But I've never been aware of when you go into a gig or go on a go out um, on a you know going to lynch people or whatever that there's a, somebody with a board who stops you and said oh excuse me are you working class are you middle class are you upper class you know so these kind of <laughs> terms get banded around and there's no proof for it but uh, I think people just like to think that they're that everybody's working class to make it sound cool but I mean as we discover in two-tone and the the musicians of two-tone is that they're, they're certainly not all working class by no means. I mean, Jerry Jerry's middle class for starts as as is many of the, the the musicians. So that so that notion needs to be dispelled immediately. I guess working class, even if it doesn't justify it, it, it like semi justifies it in a way. It's like, well, they're they're working class. They uh they they're a little bit disenfranchised too. So you can kind of understand. Like it kind of has that little bit of subtext to it. Well, maybe, but that because you're working class doesn't mean that you're disenfranchised anyway. I mean, the, the working class vote as much as anybody votes of any class. That doesn't make you disenfranchised. Yeah. And the working class vote in the millions. So, uh, uh, no, I'm not sure if I accept that. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just stating it not as, an, as a reality, but as a perception, because we have that same perception in the US, this idea that, oh, white working class people, like, it's almost like, because they're quote unquote working class, and again, like you said, not actually proven that it almost it almost justifies their their anger. I, I don't feel it justifies their anger at all. I'm just saying I think that there, yeah. there's that sort of perception in media that that is like it's brilliant nowadays because political vernacular here, but I don't know if it's in the states, but they, they don't say working class anymore. They say normal people, normal or God. hardworking, hardworking people. Yeah. And what and poly, you know whether it's the leader of the opposition or or, or the prime minister, hardworking Britons don't do, want this, or normal people don't want this. They mean working class, but nobody will say it anymore. But you know, going back to skinheads, I mean, skinheads had a revival in the late seventies, and the skinhead movement, as 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 I'm sure your listeners know and you know, is becomes a, a vital component of the two tone audience for sure. So stuff that I've read in this book and also Walls Come Tumbling Down, um, there are multiple quotes from Jerry Dammers where he talks about seeing the revival coming, yeah, kind of nervous about it because of this like this like association with these right wing elements and wanting to deliberately steer it into a better direction. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's amazing that Jerry. This is one person that when the when the, the specials, Coventry Automatics, tour with The Clash in 1978 and they play at certain gigs and there's what they, what Jerry calls the Sham Army, which is followers, skinhead followers of the group Sham 69 and, and elements of those audiences and elements of the, the, the band The Damned who the specials play with have, have people who Zeke Heil the band and and fight and there's a lot of violence coming from the football terraces into gigs because there's a clampdown on football violence here which pushes kids to more to take out these frustrations at gigs and jerry sees all this and he thinks there's a moment where this youth generation this young generation are impressionable of an impressionable age as we all are in our late teens and early 20s and and he wants to 
create something positive that will take them forward with music and and see multiculturalism and the bringing together of black and white as as something that would be uh, good for society and that can be done with dancing and and socially aware lyrics and out of that simple kind of idealistic utopian idea he makes it happen it's extraordinary it's absolutely extraordinary yeah and so when you're talking about the sham army there's a specific story in your book where they um isn't it that they they beat up the singer of the band Suicide, right? Ah, uh, yeah, Suicide are on tour on that Clash tour with the with the specials, and uh, I think this, they get they get stuff they get stuff chucked at them, and and Suicide pack up their bags and uh, come back to the states, don't they? <laughs> but you know, if you've heard Suicide <laughs> records, there was no way that was going to work in front of a Clash audience, was it? Let alone this band of uh, upstarts from Coventry who who are. Uh, playing half of a reggae song and then and then it cuts and goes to a punk song then it cuts and goes back to a reggae song it's just not going to happen yeah so uh i mean people say they were great but uh, you know i keep saying really were they great or are you saying they were great because you know what the specials become because when you listen to the demo tapes of late 78 early 79 of the coventry automatics they're not very good and I, you know, unless mm-hmm. there was something yeah. sensationally different live, then I, 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 I can't really believe. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, who, who's the saying? And these people saw it and said it was brilliant. So there you are. Also, along the context of what was happening pre uh, Rock Against Racism, pre Two Tone, is the um, Eric Eric Clapton's infamous uh, drunken rants uh, of in support of Enoch Powell and in support of. Um, like you said, repatriating, repatriating anyone who's not white and who was an immigrant. Yeah, I mean, he called them out at the Birmingham Odeon in 1976. Are there any foreigners in the audience, he asked. And then when everybody raised their hands, he identified them with with abusive language and said, you need to go back home, go back home to your own country. <laughs> I spoke to Dave Wakelin, you know, of the lead singer of The Beat, and he's down the front. He can't believe it. You know, Birmingham, I'm from Birmingham and Birmingham, Birmingham is uh, accepting and is very got a cross section of all hues and colours and races. And uh, for Clapton to come and do that in Birmingham was incredible. You know, this is the man that had a number one hit in America and the UK with I Shot the Sheriff, you know. But um, yeah, so he makes this outburst over the course of the evening and then has never to this day satisfactorily apologized you know and and as a result of clapton and what david bow was banging on at, at the time about that you know hitler was the first rock and roll superstar and the kind of person that britain needs as a leader today and rod mm-hmm. stewart kind of saying about you know the immigrants to go back home rock against racism was born and um and its political statement was to put a reggae band and a punk band on a stage together and then they jammed as musicians at the end of the evening. And Jerry went to some of these gigs in, in Coventry and he had the bright idea of putting actually the black and white members to, together in one band. He, so he intentionally recruited the best musicians he could find in Coventry that were both black and white to make his own political statement. And although now today that may sound like, well, so what, black and white? because we're so familiar with it in 1978 77 79 that's an incredibly daring and radical thing to do it's not he's not the first because there are 
examples, but hardly any, and it wasn't done as a political statement. Yeah, exactly. So, so we talked a little bit about um, like late sixties uh, reggae and skinheads. How popular or well known was this music leading into two tone? I mean, when 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 nineteen seventy nine, when the specials release gangsters and it becomes a hit. What is the understanding of ska and reggae and rocksteady to the general public? That's a good question. I mean, what, what, I think we're a bit more advanced than the States because you, as I write in the book, there was the Broadway musical in 1980 called Reggae, which completely flopped. And there's that brilliant appearance of John Lennon on the Mike Douglas show where he's, he's asked what he's into. And he says, reggae. And Mike Douglas says, what's that? And he has to explain this word reggae and what the kind of music is, you know, but uh, so here uh, when that turn of reggae that kind of mentioned 69, 70, 71, there were, there were hits, um, British hits, big hits, number one hits. I mean, it, the, 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 it had really be the, 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 the great record is Millie small, my boy lollipop, which is a smash hit in 1964 on Fontana an offshoot of, um, you know, Chris, what Chris Blackwell was doing at Ireland. And then, you know, we have Dave and Ansel Collins and um, Desmond Decker. And uh, so there are, there is a swathe of hits, um, 69, 70, but I think it's kind of seen as novelty. And, you know, when these bands appear on top of the pop, some of them, you know, dress in, um, you know, in tribal outfits. I'm just thinking of, I think it's Dave and Ansel when they do double barrel address like that. I mean, it's Return of the Django. But um, so there is a precedent. And then uh, Ken Booth, Everything I Own, has a number one hit, I think, in Britain in 74. There's 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 bits and pieces of it. Um, but anyway, I think what's more significant is it's really important to 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 remember and recognize that two tone is a, a a hybrid of genres that doesn't have any precedent in any uh music in, in any country because two tone is not ska two tone is everything is ska plus everything that happens between 64 say and 1979 which is rock disco and punk and without those elements in two-tone you don't have two-tone you know so Horace Panther of the specials plays disco bass lines think of nightclub the the uh, the octaves uh, semi semitone octave rises up and down he does pure pure disco same as Charlie Anthony the selector doing a similar kind of thing punk is Roddy Roddy Byers's guitar in the specials? It's the, the the delivery and the attitude of Terry Hall. Terry Hall does not sound like Desmond Decker or Prince Buster, you know. And and so it goes on. You can go across the band. Pauline Black is influenced by folk music. Her big influences are people like Joan Armour Trading and uh, Bert Yanch, um, and and all of the bands. Madness is influences Motown. One not solely Motown but it's a, an important influence and Woody in Badness rarely rarely if ever played an offbeat he always plays on beat which is certainly not Jamaican and, and definitely not Scar even though they're doing Prince Buster songs so yeah Two-Tone is an incredibly uh, original hybrid 
and unique to itself. In Defense of Ska will return in a moment. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. That was something I wanted to talk about next was this idea about how it was not only was it a, a unique hybrid, but it was kind of had like foresight and thought of that way. Like nobody was like, let's let's revive ska. It was like, let's let's modernize. Let's take influences here. Let's create a new thing like everyone, particularly Jerry Dammers, let's create something new. It was never about let's create something old. Yeah, yeah kind of yes and no. I mean, because the the big, as Jerry says in Too Much Too Young, the big revelation is is the capital letters song "Smoking My Ganja," which I find it difficult to hear what Jerry hears in that. In but he hears scar, and he realizes that if he uses scar instead of reggae. Uh, with the nascent specials, he will achieve what he wants to achieve, and and simply because the tempo of of uh, of rock music and ska music is the same, it's on the four four, and it be- and that becomes hugely important for Roddy in the specials when he at first he thinks he has to rewrite all his guitar lines because he's got to try and work out how you play in an offbeat manner, but then he realizes because the tempo is the same, you can play the same rock and roll kind of a Johnny Thunder style guitar parts and it will work. And Brad, John Bradbury, um, uh, is just incredible behind the drum kit in his ability to switch between rock and uh, Jamaican offbeat. Uh, and and that's not no easy thing for a drummer to do. And I think he's the smoothest of all the bands and the players to do that. But I think so. So it, it, Jerry definitely, Jerry definitely is trying to, lean on the past and then what he calls musical quotations. So gangsters and too much the young exist already as special songs. And then he adds the elements from the original songs and the demos exist where those elements don't aren't there. So uh, literally here's a musical quotation changing the song. So they are taken from the past, but how much of that, is a proactive conversation amongst all the members of the band. I, I think my overriding sense would be talking to all the musicians. 
You know, it's not, you know, Neil Davis naturally plays blues and he loves reggae. And it just becomes over the years playing with the various different bands in, in Coventry, his style emerges. So when he forms a selector, he plays that style. And, uh, and Com Compton, as the other guitarist, comes from, um, Gar uh, he's Ghanaian. So, so Com Compton's coming in with a very different uh, style. But I think they're, nat they're kind of natural styles in a way. And you just, I mean, Horace, yeah, he learned reggae bass and he was being taught how to do it by members of the selection but, and, and the specials. But he was trying to bring in you know, all, you know, he likes the average white band and he's trying to fuse these different kind of influences. So I think I think it's, it, it's a bit of both, I think, to what you're suggesting. Uh, some of it's very conscious, some, some of it's just natural, as, as is the case with how musicians and bands work, I'd say. Yeah. From a historical point of view, you could say like, okay, so it, punk explodes in England and then two-tone but i mean it's a little more complicated than that but and there's also the element of reggae being something that's pretty close to and around punk as well so the fact that two-tone comes out after as a punked up version of ska and reggae does sort of make sense from an evolutionary point of view well i completely forgot <laughs> when you just said about the fusion of punk and, and uh, reggae of course in, from 76 onwards, I mean, reggae really becomes a thing, mainly because of Bob Marley. I mean, he's a superstar, isn't he, by 79? So, you know, a lot of... But uh, who's buying Bob Marley records? I, I don't know, I mean, how mainstream he was to the British audience at that point. Uh, but, the, yeah, that fusion's there, isn't it? And it's, you know, you hear it in The Clash, The Police. The Members is another one. Yeah, I mean, they weren't a big band, but uh, but yeah, I mean, there's lots yeah. of the ruts, lots of bands on the periphery, but yeah, but I think probably the police are the biggest band, aren't they, that that really cross over to m and have massive audience doing this kind of fusion music. They're one of the few bands that you're talking about, too, that actually has a huge audience in the US as well. Yes. And and then the and then and then the beat going tour with the police and the specials do. I'm not sure Madness do. Perhaps they do. They benefit, don't they, all the way through their careers supporting the the um, the police. Even the final gig the specials ever play in Boston, I think, in '81, is supporting the police. Mm. So okay, the earlier version of the specials. I don't know exactly when they changed the name. '78 apparently, first night of the Clash tour at Aylesbury. That's what. Apparently is the case. But they also they also took a break, didn't they, for like six months to sort of retool this vision of playing ska rather than reggae and punk? The Bernie Rhodes years. Yeah. Bernie Rhodes knows don't argue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he takes them on and uh, says, Stop playing live. You're not ready. Tells tells Jerry, don't 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 dress how you want to, dress how the audience are. Copy the audience. And then sends them off to Paris, and uh, they arrive just as the damned have smashed up all this their hotel, and the, the specials cop it, and, <laughs> and then suddenly guns appear, guitars are confiscated, they come back to England, and they're rehearsing in the Clash's room, rehearsal rehearsals, and Jerry upturns Joe Strummer's guitar, gets a piece of paper out and a pen, and writes "gangsters" on the back of Joe Strummer's guitar. <laughs> damn i love that too because um the specials um the, all, all the two-tone bands 
it appears as a movement because part of what you're saying is like they all had a good look. They all looked a little different, but they all made sense together. Yeah. Like there was a fashion associated with the music. There was an ideology associated with the music. There was certain styles of music. So it it really had a strong appearance when these bands all started having singles on the radio and started touring stuff. And again, just like the music, it's like they took pieces of old culture and they recontextualized them a bit. The Rude Boy thing is an interesting one. Rude Boy used to mean something different in, in Jamaica. It was more, I'm not sure exactly how you would describe it, but it wasn't a guy who likes ska. It was, but that's kind of what it became through two-tone. Well, I mean, they, they were, Rude Boys in, in Jamaica carried guns and were violent, looked great, looked cool, had a look, and then you get that kind of transition between Scar and Rocksteady, where you do get the Rude Boy uh, kind of records and the, the songs about the Rude Boys going to jail and uh, 100 years sentences and whatever else. And Jerry nonchalantly said in, in an interview in Brit the British papers in early 79, we need a cult of our own. You know, the, the Pistols and the Clash had the punks and, you know, uh, Paul Weller's got the mods. We need something, you know, and he says, oh, I don't know, you know, something like Rude Boys or something, knowing full well that he'd already imagined this and he got this dream that he could turn everybody into all these kids on the street into Rudies. <laughs> Again, it happens. <laughs> but, you know, right, I've seen this thing that um, uh, Jerry had a, a cigarette packet and you, he opened it up and on the... The, the blank side on the inside, he wrote down what he what he thought a Rude Boy was in, in blue pen. And he makes this list of the records that Rude Boys would listen to and the clothes they would wear. And it's a fusion of skinhead and mod of the 60s. And, um, and then they introduce this concept to the British public and it sweeps the nation and it's quite amazing. And then, but then, and then they, re, then they do a cover of Dandy's a message to you, Rudy. And I think this is the thing I've never quite understood. And I definitely misunderstood it 100% at the time. But but as, as you're saying, you know, the Rude Boys were uh, ragamuffins in the, uh, to use Neville Staples terminology in, in the mid 60s, gun carriers. These were violent people. Yeah. So here's the special saying, we, you're all Rudy's, but don't, don't be violent. Here's a message to you. So they say, be a Rudy, but don't be a Rudy. And then the, and then the brilliant side to that is, to, I think, unless you can prove me wrong, um, Pauline Black invents the rude girl. That's my understanding as well. Isn't that brilliant? Yeah. 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 Because it's not Rhoda, because Rhoda is, is, is a mod. She's dressing in 60s gear. And, uh, yeah. and Pauline, Belinda Magnus who doesn't know who she is, she's been raised by a white family in Essex, joins the band, and when she doesn't want to get caught out by the government on, for claiming Dole and um, being, uh, for, have, for working and being out on the road and whatever else, needs a new uh, uh, identity, and, the, and together with the band come up with Pauline Black, she literally says I have a new I found my new identity I am black and I am Pauline and so she dons the clothes primarily of what the specials are wearing and becomes the first rude girl amazing 
and everybody got it. Is, yeah. yeah, and for for girls, young women, what a role model. I mean, you know, you know, when I did um uh when I helped to reissue the selector uh too much pressure album and I got to hear all these tapes of the specials playing live in 79 and 80. Um some of them from the record label from some from Neil Davis's collection. And I heard sound checks and gigs from all over the place. Every single instance where the voice is needed, Pauline gives it everything. She's such a powerful singer, such dedication, perfect tuning each time, great attitude. The the only the only sadness to me is we're in too much pressure. For a brief period, she used to sing the backing vocal, too much pressure for the rude boy. Too much pressure for the roof boy, and I really wish they'd kept that line, or it was I, I could have used a version with that just so it exists for fans because it's so cool. Yeah. Okay. So, so the specials re- release gangster, and then on the other side is gangsters. <laughs> yeah, gangsters. <laughs> B side is the selector Kingston affair, but it's not really the selector we know today. It's uh, Neil Davis and. Uh, John Bradbury, uh, specials drummer. Um, I can't remember if anyone else is on that recording. To replace trombone, Barry. Barry from the sweet shop. <laughs> okay. That's true. <laughs> so they self-released this record at this point, right? And they got some money, some funding from some shady character named Jimbo. Yeah. Yeah. Be careful. Don't say his full name. That had to come out of the book. Roddy, Roddy <laughs> said that they, Roddy said that they went to get the, uh, to get the money, and they had to open the glove compartment, and there was a gun in there. <laughs> it's like him and Terry were there, and they were just really scared. And I said, "What?" I said to Roddy, "What kind of a guy is this Jimbo?" And he said, "Well, put it this way: rumor around Coventry was that he'd he'd force somebody to dig an, uh, an, uh, a shallow grave." Oh Christ! <laughs> what was going to happen to him? And he said, "I can't tell you too much because this this guy's still around. He was he was of um." dual heritage mixed heritage and um he was a former boxer and he put up two thousand pounds and thank god that they sold enough records because they did pay him back um but he's <laughs> virtually impossible to find any trace of online and i began to investigate and then i think uh i think roddy and jerry was a uh, subtly warning me off <laughs> you're getting close stay yeah. away <laughs> don't don't follow the money daniel <laughs> that's jerry jerry's advice this was an interesting detail too about the recording of gangsters terry hall recorded uh an angry vocal take and a board take and and combined them that's cool yeah horace says that he said it's a jim morrison idea and they're big doors fans aren't they i mean you hear that in terry hall's music throughout all his career there's always a doors influence in in, in the music he makes and i really like that uh, that you hear that and uh, you know and the, the great one is right at the end of two tones life on the higsons uh, tear the whole thing down there's a massive thunderclap and jerry recorded that from uh, outside his window of his flat because he, he it, it was on Riders on the what's the title Riders on the Storm the Doors song and he'd always wanted it on a, on a record so there it is on the Higsons the uh, but yeah I mean I mean I think I think Terry's voice is really interesting because if you think of how he sings on the Too Too Much Too Young EP 
It's sensational. And he's just almost completed 50 dates of the two-tone tour, a massive extensive tour. If you then listen to the voice on the specials album, it's a lot thinner. And then if you go back and listen to, say, the specials at the Moonlight or, or any bootlegs from that period, it, it, it's really desperately trying to find, he's trying to find himself. So his development as a lead singer in, a, in a, just a matter of months, I think is quite extraordinary. And then as you get into 1980, what he, how he performs on Rat Race and more specials. I mean, he's so confident by that point as a vocalist. It's brilliant. Yeah, I mean, great, 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 great singer, isn't he? Oh, he's he's one of the best singers from that era. And I, you know, go into Fun Boy 3, go into his solo stuff in the 90s. Mm. He He's an awesome singer. Yeah, no, I can. The best album that I think Terry Hall does after uh, after Fun Boy 3 and Colourfield, probably after Fun Boy 3, is the Mushtak album. I think he's that 99, 2000. That, to me, if, if anybody ever said, could the specials, what would the specials have sounded like? 20 years later. I suspect it would have been that Mushtaq album, The Hour of Two Lights with Terry Wood. We'll be right back after this. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. So I want to talk about the so the two-tone as a label, the stuff that you talk about and, and the deal they got is all kind of so strange to me. I want to kind of get some insight into that. Like mm. Gangsters does well. And so that gives them leverage to talk to record labels and kind of iron out a deal and so they get a deal with chrysalis but their deal is they want their own label and they want full control of it mm. how, how would you describe it because it seems like they got a deal that was kind of really good and kind of unprecedented <laughs> it's nuts because they've got mick jagger coming down to see them saying come and sign to rolling stones records they've got uh richard branson saying whatever you get i'll double and uh, and put put money in the back pocket of the manager. They've got four or five labels all offering them deals. And the only, and again, I went and spoke to Chrysalis Records, the, 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 the main player, there's two main players there, Roy Aldridge and Doug Darcy. And I spoke to both of them for Too Much Too Young. And uh, they were infatuated with what they saw. And the specials, like Doug, uh, I mean, sorry, like Roy. And Roy gets it. And but basically what, Jerry has charged Rick Rogers to do, Rick being the pretty much the de facto manager. He has to sign the specials to a record deal. But but if they sign the specials, the the the, uh, the Labour have to agree to a thing called two-tone. And this thing called two-tone is allowed to put out up to 10 records a year by any band. The rec- so, so the record labels go, who, who are these other bands? Jerry says, no idea. Never, I don't know. I don't know what that, but they're gonna say, but they're gonna be great, trust me. <laughs> okay, and then tell me more. Okay, so when they come and make a record for us, 
they can do one song and then they we they don't really have a contract they can just go off and do whatever they want <laughs> you know it's a madness it's a madness do one song and leave as as jerry wants it to go and do stiff and then the beat do a single off they go go and do uh go and do go feed with uh, arista and it, it, it's just nuts but what i did really discover when i when i um uh wrote the book is that i compared the advance of bands like the clash and the sex pistols compared to the specials advance and what it seems to me is i think the special signed for 20000 and uh pounds and they really could have been getting in excess of a hundred thousand pounds, which would have made more sense for a deal of nineteen seventy nine with a band with a buzz around it to the extent the specials had. And it seems that the compromise is in taking the two tone label on. Now I'm that's me hypothesizing, not hypothesizing. I'm this conjecture. I'm I don't know that for certain, but that's how it suggested itself to me. Um, but but either way. Jerry gets what he wants. And the, the the most important aspect of that deal is Jerry has total autonomy. He will decide, as I've said, all the bands, he will decide who signed to Two-Tone. He will decide what the songs are they put out. He will decide the artwork. And he will present pretty much everything as a fait accompli to Chrysalis. And Chrysalis go, yep sign here <laughs> and so they do and it's i think that speaks volumes about Der- jerry's dedication to an idea um and a passion for making a, a british motown uh of a and a label that has an identifiable sound and if not quite the you know the for Henry Ford production line, then that, that idea of we'll get out, churn out singles, and they do, and they're big hits, and they sell quarter of a million, half a million, number ones. <laughs> you know, it's it's incredible that it that this is that it all works. You know, the deal I think is pretty critical to this um, how Two Tone became like a movement because of the kind of control Jerry had that he was able to control the artwork and control the bands that were part of it, that had he not got that deal, I'm not sure if we would be thinking two-tone in the same way that we do now. It's like this movement of bands that were on sort of on the same page. Yeah, no, exactly right. And he's trying to sign bands in the image almost of the specials. And the other labels were struggling with what this bizarre idea was, because I'm not altogether sure it had ever happened before. And then, the, of course, the beat replicate the idea with Go Feet. So Madness, let's talk about Madness a little bit. Madness form independently of the specials in London because they don't, they're not aware of each other initially, but they're also fans of reggae and ska and these other elements. And so they're kind of doing their own fusion of these styles of music. Mm. And then the bands meet. And then it's my understanding that one of the main things that Madness got from the specials was... Uh, the energy level of that that they played at, yeah, and also the validity to do uh, reggae scar because they would be madness would often dropping that element from their set, and it gave them renewed hope when when they saw the mm. specials doing that. 
And um, but yeah, I mean, the band soon played gigs together in July 1979, going up to places like Liverpool. And and they, when I speak to members of of, of Madness as I do, like Mike Barson and Suggs, they are knocked out by the energy level of the of the specials and the attitude on, on stage. And there's this, I mean, one of the absolute incredible elements of Tuto is all the bands have two singers. I mean, I, I mean that's just such a bizarre coincidence. The Body Snatchers are the only band that doesn't on two tone at the, in this period. You know, in the beat you get Rankin, Roger, Dave Wakeley, you get Chaz and Suggs in Madness, Neville and uh, and Terry in the Specials, and Neil and Pauline in the Selector. That's entirely coincidental. But you know, that's like John and Paul of the Beatles. But it's not as if that's the normal thing to do in in rock and roll history, is it? I mean, it's quite extraordinary. And on top of that, like you said earlier, they're all kind of dressing in the similar ways as one another. They've all fallen in love with a Jamaican scar, and uh, and the the coincidences are huge. And yet, it looks like it must be pre planned in some way or you know and and yet it just all fortuitously falls into place incredible incredible story yeah definitely the other thing that's interesting um the specials like you were saying jerry had a vision and he's trying to take people from these different walks of life to have these different elements but my impression with madness is that they're very different in the sense that these are all guys that grew up together or come from the same place so they're actually not from different walks of life and not you know, so they actually have probably, in a way, more cohesion to them, which might explain why they were able to sort of, um, you know, continue on as a band much longer than the other two tone bands. Well, Chaz says in the book that Madness were just nicer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they were just compared to the specials. It just argued all the time. Um, I mean, the I have to be careful in saying that actually, because I think one of the great themes that emerged writing too much too young is is contradiction and the story of two-tone is all about contradiction and it's the contradictory elements of men and women together on stage it's white non-white musicians it's not even black and white from jamaica it's all the caribbean islands and again class class i mean britain is run on the class system then and now and yet these bands are made up of working class middle class upper class that there's contradiction everywhere this the the influences are contradictory and um and and i think the contradictions is absolutely the strength of two-tone because life for most people is a contradiction um and you 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 have to negotiate your day to day with the contradictions of your own feelings, your engagement with society. You think this one day, you might think something another day. But these were all bands that were trying to bring these disparate elements together to see if they could even survive. And the one person that's really eloquent about this in the book is Juliette DeVee, who co-runs the two-tone office in London with Rick Rogers. And then as a 21-year-old, takes on the selector and becomes their manager. And uh, and is damn good at it too, and but she's very articulate, and is very very aware of the challenges facing these individual members internally, their own internal problems of being 
you know, particularly in the selector, half, more than half the band have been uprooted as young boys, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten, and suddenly just told, you're going to another country, and they come to this, to Britain, and then they're suddenly thrust into a, schools where they're getting racist abuse, they, you know, and having to survive. Um and then they're having to, they're suddenly in the band with a woman. Not all of them are very good at dealing with women. And then they, they, they as Juliet says, the selectacy, racism in everything. And, uh, and so this is, these contradictions are what makes the, the vitality and the aggressive sound of the music and gives it something really exciting. But it will also be what lays down the roots of why these bands fight and fall out with each other but for some yeah. odd reason madness who can argue like the best of them it seems and like children row with each other and brothers and sisters row or you can have a row with your mate down the pub but then you somehow just shove his arm and have a and and just go you know and say and you're all right again your friends madness always had that ability and they drew on one another as kind of itinerant kids who grew up and were born from around the uk but kind of centered around kentish town and muswell hill and um you know these not muswell yeah muswell hill and Hampstead and these kind of areas even though they're known as a camden band i'm not sure how many of them actually lived in camden but um but they they survive and, and become the success story of the British single chart in the 1980s. I want to talk a little about the tension of, like, particularly on the two-tone tour. So the two-tone tour is Madness, two, um, Selector, the specials, and it happens in, uh, I think, October of 1979. And um, Madness, so the specials are very explicitly political and or you know they have a they have a purpose but madness i don't really see themselves as being a political band they see themselves more as a pop band and i think i think there's some tension about how they handle some of these um components at the shows like the violence and the 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 national front nazi kids showing up mm. what is your take on all that uh, well, Madness are on that tour for two weeks, and then the next three weeks, uh, it's Dex's Midnight Runners because the Madness are going to come to the states and uh, record an, an album as well. So, um, and I, I'm not sure how. I think it's politics, social politics, not party politics. I'm not sure how political any of the bands are really, in a way. Even though somebody like Jerry Dammers, you know, he said. He, said, he phoned me up one day and he said, Daniel, I don't know if you can say I'm a Marxist. I've never read Das Kapital. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> to think about that one. But he's got a socialist mindset and he's trying to, um, he's trying, Two-Tone is a socialist cooperative as much as it possibly can be. Uh, most of the songs that are on the first albums of those three bands were written under a socialist Labour government. And then by the time Two-Tone really breaks and this tour happens, then there's a Conservative government. So it's a kind of, that's an interesting contradiction, isn't it? That, um, that it's always supposed that it's, but, you know, that it's thought of as anti-Thatcherite, but that, and that does become a thing. But, uh, but, a lot, but the lyrics don't, aren't born out of that in many, in many instances. But yeah, Madness's background, a couple of the members and I, and I, talk about this in the book, I've, I've got right-wing backgrounds, very unsavoury uh, backgrounds. And 
they're like a lot of the audience is and it's the great great question can the music of these two tone bands turn these impressionable young people from being racist into something more positive and members of madness change their outlook and their belief and Suggs talks about openly in the book about the influence of Jerry and two-tone and the conversations that made him see the world differently that that is brilliant and, and incredible but at the same time you know the bit the the criticism that was around madness in this period was that the press were calling them out for not speaking out uh, for members of the audience who were zeke-hiling them or coming to their gigs and openly being openly being racist. And Madness ultimately say, we're called Madness because that's a Prince Buster song. He's black. We play the music of Jamaica and Scar. Those musicians are black. Their influences of of Motown are black musicians. They, they felt it was so obvious that they didn't um, that they that they didn't have a problem with black people. They didn't need to be making statements to the press. But it, it uh, sadly it wasn't enough, and the accusations and the the audiences they attract people point out madness and they struggle with this for 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 the for 79 18 into 81 until they eventually make yeah. a statement then but they, they make they do put out a statement in 81 i mean i think it's kind of weird i mean i guess there's reason for it but it's kind of weird that like what they're doing attracts these elements like people coming to the shows and seeing hiling and national front but because it seems like it's so obviously against it mm. i'm not sure if it's if it's people coming to um because of like the roots of this music and and like you know skinheads and stuff, or is it like to antagonize it, or if it's a little bit of both? Yeah, I mean it's a strange one, isn't it? You know, um, but it, I, I mean I th- I I'd probably say that the majority of musicians I've spoken to would probably say that these weren't audience members with an ideological belief in Nazism or fascism. It's it's something to belong to, and and if you agree with a lot of the musicians of Two Tone, these people their opinions could be turned. And Chaz particularly talks about this idea that you know he, his analogy is lancing a boil. You can't lance a boil from fifty meters away. You have to have proximity. Proximity is get these people into the gigs and let's change their mu- their view by what we're offering on stage which is, you know, inclusivity. And um, there's a strong argument for that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, because he he had kind of um, his the way he initially expressed it, I think, came off uh, wrong to a lot of people because he said, we don't care if people yeah, but are... These are teenagers, you know, they're, they're teenagers trying to talk to journalists who are out to get a story. Sure. They, they get they get caught up in their own words. And Chaz isn't a member of Madness yet. You know, he's on stage with them, but he's not officially. And the other members of the band get annoyed and start berating Chaz in front of the journalist. And the journalist is, goes ahead and prints it all, you know. And at the same time, that same journalist is a fan of Two Tone. And in other articles, says great things about all the bands. So, you know, it's sad, really. I mean, but, you know, Jer- Jerry's very aware and was wary that 
I would I in the book would put too much emphasis on the right wing elements at two tone gigs, because in his opinion, the majority of gigs are absolute celebrations of the brilliant music that these bands are playing and the audience dance and and are brought into the the love of two tone. And, you know, but and that is I don't doubt Jerry, but you do get to a situation where Lee Thompson of Madness makes a statement in in the latter part of 1980. If this violence doesn't stop, the earliest solution is we split up. Terry Hall in 1980 says the only solution is for us to stop playing live. And ultimately, as Jerry says about Ghost Town, bands won't play no more. Too much fighting on the dance floor. That's about the specials who are going to split because they can't. They don't know how to deal. They're attracting violence. They don't want that. Yeah, definitely. So again, we're kind of talking about the the first three two tone bands because I think it's pretty important in sort of understanding the development of two tone. There's the specials, Madness, and Selector. Also, they did the two tone tour as well, and the the but all three of those bands played Top of the Pops in um, when was that? Was that November of 1979, I believe. Yeah, mid mid They're all shown on top of the pops. I mean, I have to burst the bubble here and say that the selector weren't in the studio. It was a previous edition that they used the footage of. But it was. It was a great two tone night. You know, two tones. Suddenly, three bands on this thirty minute show that upwards of twenty million might be watching on one particular week. Wow. Two tone has landed, and it's it is it's as as important as as you know the specials performing on Saturday Night Live, as the Beatles supporting on playing on the Ed Sullivan Show. It has it's 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 a explosive moment for Two Tone. There, uh, you know these all the bands have been on top of the pops before, but here they are, three bands out of I don't know how many bands you get on one episode, perhaps seven. Wow, amazing! It was incredible. So this is like, yeah, this is two tone explosion. I think the th- these things we're talking about um, in nineteen late nineteen seventy nine. Yeah, the specials record, um, famously uh, produced by Elvis Costello. Yeah, um, who also didn't really get Roddy's what Roddy brought to the table initially. I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. I mean, if you listen to the specials live, they sound like that's too much too young. That's them live. Well, that's that is not what the special's debut album is. It's an entirely different record, but I think it's a brilliant, brilliant record. Oh, yeah. And I love all the the thing, the way that Brad Snare Roller, beginning of Messes You Really, jumps out, or Neville's vocal suddenly on Do The Dog is louder than anything you've ever heard on vinyl. And then, you know, things are all like Rolling Stones records. You know, there are just things are, are leaping out. And you don't get that today because if you listen to compressed MP3s, the compression damps it all down. But on a vinyl, there it is jumping out. And I, I think uh, Costello had great uh, oral ideas and you know that he's employing across the record and roddy's guitar is there when it needs to be there and it's and it, and i think i think it, it has a great this it, it it it's really yeah it's prominent when it needs to be but not in the way perhaps that roddy was used to hearing at a concert but that's all right because that's part of the reason why that album was so successful and continues to be i think costello you know, he wasn't a producer, but he he became one and he had a vision. And 
I think I yeah I I applaud Elvis Costello for what he did for the specials. Yeah, no, that album sounds great. It's so uniquely produced and and it really captures the band in a, in a, such a great way. One one story I loved about that record was that um, for the opening of Nightclub, how he got a, he grabbed a crate of beer, the bands, their friends, <laughs> uh, apparently a girl in a skin tight red rubber S and M suit. <laughs> And they got into a small cubicle, and he turned the light out and hit record. Well, you know who the bo- the backing vocalist is, don't you, on Nightclub? Uh, it's Chrissy Hine, right? There you From are. The pretenders. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. According to Roddy, yeah, he slipped to her phone number, and she asked for Terry's, and uh, you know that's that that's that that's where the, my book gets a bit tabloid. But sure, uh, you know, I'm. I don't, I, you know, but who wouldn't want, who want, who wouldn't, you know, want to give your phone number to Terry Hall? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the Madness record was recorded a little later, but when they signed with Stiff, I think. Only Stiff- just. They, they took Clive Langer, their producer, uh, Alan, they, when they went in the studios, same studio, straight after the specials, they got out the specials um uh tapes to have a listen to see what oh, they yeah. doing. And it, uh, isn't that great? Yeah, another so fun detail about this one too is that uh, the one step beyond was apparently half as long, but then the engineer or producer lets copy and paste the uh, second half and then put record like bring the horn through a processor the second time to make it sound different. Do I understand it correctly? Yeah, an even tired harmonizer. Yeah, that's it. That, I don't know if it's strictly as a half, but you can hear it on the single version on the on the vinyl version. Absolutely. They uh, don't they don't don't they re-record it for one step beyond the album, but the single version. Oh, it's the single uh, version. Is definitely is definitely that it's that great because Madness had never performed it more than a minute longer, you know. But I'd love to hear that. Yeah, you? just hear that original version. Yeah, but uh, yeah, yeah, great, brilliant. And even though they're on Stiff Records by then, they're still very much part of the Two Tone Firmament, aren't they? And they do continue to be. Until you know they come to the states, don't they? And they play with the Go Go's, and they still go on headlines with two tone bands, and then they end up on the Dance Crazer uh, soundtrack. Yeah, and so then these records come out like actually on the same day, which is pretty amazing too. Yeah, no, brilliant. I mean, what fantastic! I, you know that that would have uh, that would have stretched your uh, paper round budget. <laughs> <laughs> which one? Specials Madness. God, how'd you choose? I love thinking about that two-tone tool, which everybody goes, oh, amazing. But the thing I realised, that if you're in the audience, you would only know one song by the selector, possibly two, and you'd only know one or two songs by Madness, maybe only one, and you'd only know a handful by the specials until, uh, you know, uh, because, so that's a strange idea, that they're hearing these new sets by these bands and they're but they're still going absolutely nuts because it's just immediate and infectious it's brilliant now the selectors record as you as you documented uh the production was not something that um a lot of the band appreciated no i mean i spoke to pretty much all of that and i i have a feeling i might be the first person ever to have spoken to errol ross the producer because i thought hang on a minute we can't I just have the all the members of the selector going on about how bad it is. What does Errol say about all of this? And so that's really interesting to hear his version of it. But really, I mean, I listened to that record. I don't think it's so bad. You know, I mean, I know that 
Roger Lomas did such an amazing job on on the radio and too much pressure. But the too much pressure on the version on the album, I think, sounds good. And generally speaking, I don't think it's so bad, you know, and maybe they were trying to do something that was different from what the live thing is. But, you know, I know that Pauline, she loves to celebrate the bullet and thinks it's way better. But and maybe production wise, it is. But I would I would say that the songs on Too Much Pressure are better as songs. And um and and yeah, I don't know really. I mean, and uh, there and in, then in saying that, their songs across that whole album probably aren't as strong as the songs of the specials, in my opinion. You know, so <clears throat> so it's a it you know, but I like the selector because of that album Too Much Pressure. You know, but but what I wanted to do in the book was represent what the band went through. And what it was like for them in the studio. And I, you know, and I thought that was really fascinating to hear what Commie thinks or what Gaps thought about being in the studio and what they thought of uh, Errol. And, and, and so I bring it all together. And then, um, you know, as a reader, you can hear the stories and go back to the record and hear it in a different way and have, you know, either cling to your view or maybe your view will be changed by the, the opinion in the book. In Defense of Ska will return in a moment. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Selector to me have like a very unique sound in that I feel like they took the Jamaican elements of ska and reggae and they took the punk elements authentically and they melded them was so so well and almost the most in of all the bands almost the most equally of taking these influences and making something that was all of those things at the same time yeah i mean i'm not sure how much punk there is in the selection it was definitely the energy of it the like the just... yeah because there's nobody i'm not sure anybody in the selector like liked punk. <laughs> no <laughs> thinking about it no, actually, I actually don't think they do. I don't think Neil was into punk very much. And he's writing the songs. Did Pauline, Pauline liked X-Ray Specs, definitely. She was really into a, to doobie-doo, what's her name, um, polystyrene. Uh, maybe maybe more than a, but Pauline, but her voice isn't punk and she hasn't got that much of an influence on a lot of the music on that record. Then they're all the other lot. I don't know. So, yeah, I mean, they're all uniquely different, aren't they? Um, and all the bands are in the same way as the beat have got a very different take on 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 these influences. I mean, you start getting into what David Steele and um, uh, and uh, oh, mine's gone blank. What's the guitarist called uh, in the from the in the beat? Uh, Andy Andy Cox. I mean, those two. Those Andy and David, what they bring to the beat, I think is sensational, really. And you and and you really hear it. You know, when you think of Johnny Come Come Home, the first Phone Young Cannibals breakthrough record, that would have been a beat 
song just purely on the backing it's a very beat idea and of course david Steele in the beat uh had written a, a huge part of those songs so he came with mirror in the bathroom and tristan crawl and it's then dave wakelin that obviously writes uh melodies and and lyrics and he's brilliant at it too um but yeah, I mean, all the bands have, have got unique influences and unique sounds. Otherwise, ultimately, that's why, you know, that's why any band in, in music gets signed, because they've got something individual that no other band's got. Well, you hope so anyway. So the bands start coming to the U.S. It seems to me like, with, especially the case of the Selector and the Specials, that they just really don't have a great experience in the U.S. and it kind of deflates them a bit. I've got to, I've got quite a few bootlegs of the special particularly the specials playing in the States on that first tour, you know, and like when the, when they play Long Island and Debbie Harry introduces them. I mean, that, that bootleg of that gig is, a uh, is absolutely brilliant. And the audience are going nuts. And uh, the sing along at the end for you're wondering now, which goes on f- feels like 10 minutes, just the audience on their own. And the band are, are sounding amazing on that tour. Uh, absolutely. But I think it's because they're giving their all um, and they can they can save it up for the performance. And um, but there is, you know, there is, but they're, they're struggling because the amount of shows they're doing, the proximity of the dates, the, 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 the enormous size of the of the states compared to the UK to travel. These elements are really test the band. And then and then your seven people plus your entourage cramped up in tour buses all day long and then 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 we go back to the contradictions the class differences what people want do they want who those that embrace drugs those that don't those that have got middle class backgrounds have got a certain way of living or want to reject it those want to embrace money others don't and those contradictions will begin to come out. So they get damaged, the specials, particularly by their experience of the States. But their madness come and they find it tough, but they come back and they're all right. You know, and the selector go and do it. And again, they argue or they argue, you know, they they. They could argue over the over a packet of crisps. You know, that's <laughs> the message that com- comes across with the selector. But, you know, the beat survive it and madness survive it so whatever you say is the reason for it the contradiction is the bands that don't fall out because of it that's that's a fascinating area i think i get the impression that jerry in particular didn't really care for the u.s and his u.s experience it's well he might not expect care for the the experience because what it does to him personally but i wouldn't say that he feels like that about the u.s I don't think I don't know if that's true. I mean, even when the specials say when the when Neville, Terry, and Linville say they're leaving the specials around uh, the summer of eighty one, they come back to the states, don't they, and honor the tour that they've cancelled from January eighty one, and that so the specials always want to be back there doing playing to U.S. audiences, even at the lowest ebb that they can be as a band. There they are coming back out to the States. So, again, is that contradiction? I don't know. Or is it just, you know, a passion for wanting to bring their music to a, a US audience? So th- there's so much more we could talk about with Two-Tone, but I want to kind of leave on this uh, with this question. Um, 
how how two tone has impacted British culture because how it impacted culture outside of England, I think, is that largely that it planted this seed that we call ska. And like you said, it's not actually ska that was Jamaicans played in the 60s, but it is like it was redefined in a way globally and it planted a seed all over the world and all these new branches grew in uh, multiple countries. And I think that foundation was two-tone for for many of them. But I don't know that that's exactly the legacy that it had in British culture. I think it was a little different. So I'm curious on your take of that. Yeah, well, I mean, at that point in British cultural history, late 70s, early 80s, the, the rapid turnover of tribal movements is incredible. You know, you're going from punk, new wave, two-tone, Adam the Ants, Bow Wow Wow, kind of a Burundi drum rhythms, new romantics, synth pop duos. I mean, it's going quick, 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 quick. And sometimes they're they're running concurrently. So the fact that two-tone lasts from the summer of 79 uh, through to 80, summer of 81, that's a hell of a long period to have sustained massive hit records. And although the fashion changes from the Rudy look and evolves, at least they do survive. And then Two-Tone itself continues as a label all the way through to 86. And then, that, and then thereafter, with you know, the legacy immediately is what Jerry does, having written Nelson Mandela for the special AKA. Yeah. And, then, and that ultimately with Nelson Mandela himself at Wembley Stadium on stage and a global audience of 600 million. You know, I mean, that is in, uh, unbelievable. You know, that, 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 that's where a two-tone record brings a man and everybody singing the song, Free Nelson Mandela. You know, but all the cults and all those, all, you know, the records have always, I would say, lasted because you always hear them on British radio. You, uh, as I said before, Madness are one of the biggest singles bands of the 80s. Bad Manners have a brilliant run of um, of records in the 80s, and they're on Dance Craze and associated with Two-Tone. Likewise, associated with Two-Tone, uh, a UB40, one of the most successful reggae bands, white reggae, or mixed race, mixed heritage rec- uh, uh, reggae bands in the world, so, uh, born out of that. Uh, and that that their success is phenomenal. And I, I was a massive UB40 fan. Um, maybe up to Jeffrey Morgan, where it goes really wrong, <laughs> in my opinion. But uh, so, uh, and then there's the revival years, isn't there? You know, you talk about in the in the states with uh, you know what people like no doubt were doing and the the uh, the third wave of scar. But in the same way as two term was, as you rightly said, was totally different from Jamaican sixties scar. So two was early mid-90s American scar of two-tone. But then the big difference is, I guess, is the, the, the when the bands reform and they start playing to massive houses again in Britain. So the Funboy specials play to, to thousands here and then end up having the number one album, don't they? And uh, with Encore, the special, uh, the selection, the beat, even though it's ranking rank Rogers' beat, are playing to places like the Roundhouse. They're not having massive hit records, but they're playing to thousands again. And and the uh, Rhododac is still out there doing stuff. And it's regenerating 
and this story has never got old really or people have never got bored of it in magazines uh radio shows television documentaries film documentaries i mean stephen knight the director has got a british drama about two-tone the man who created peaky blinders uh coming out in uh, january 2024 and and i'm sure that's going to make rude boys and two-tone massive again pauline black's about to have a documentary on sky arts uh, which is in the filming process at the moment the dem- and and now you know from i i humbly put forward my book <laughs> and and, and if, if the first day or so is to go to base anything on then it the, then british sales look like they might be reflecting a passion for wanting to read about about the movement in a chunky sized version for the first time ever yeah i know it, I, it is like i want to say that it is surprising to me that there hasn't yet been a book like yours about two-tone considering how much a part of British culture it was and continues to be. I thank all the authors around the world for allowing me time to develop <laughs> my skills <laughs> and and the years it needed to persuade Jerry Damas to let me do it. <laughs> a tip. So, yeah, I mean, it's astonishing, isn't it? George Marshall's book was brilliant in the early 90s, but it was very thin. Yeah. And there's been, um, there's been, there's been books on the specials and, um, um, members of the bands have written books and um, I've slipped in there <laughs> so I'm really pleased because you know I would love you know just the, the, I've got such a beautiful compliment on that if you look at uh, John Savage who wrote the the definitive book on punk England's dreaming he wrote a comment uh, about that he really enjoyed the book and he said the perfect example of where an author and a subject have gloriously come together or something like that. And it's like, oh, wow, I respect John Savage's opinion. And and I thought that was a lovely thing to have written. Yeah, and I think that prior to your book, the closest, in my opinion, to really kind of having a good kind of, say this is what Two-Tone was and what it was about, was the section of your previous book, The Walls Come Tumbling Down, which wasn't about two tone it was about two tones place in this sort of politics of music yeah exactly exactly and and i've taken some stuff from that book to put into this book because it needs to be part of it if i hadn't written that book i would have used it as the source material anyway but i just as a funny thing i remember uh, jerry phoned me up when wars come tumbling down came out and he said you know uh i spoke to rick the manager of um especially said rick thinks it's the best book ever written about two-tone i was going really wow that's brilliant and jerry said but i don't <laughs> <laughs> which is just so be- brilliant of jerry but you know um i think jerry liked it enough that he when i did my launch for wars come tumbling down he turned up with a box of singles and said can i dj <laughs> of course you can I was just too. I I can't believe that I had a party that I'd organised and Jerry came and DJed and I was talking to so many people that I didn't even. I just wanted to sit and listen to Jerry DJ. I can't believe I didn't. But yeah, so but that's very kind of you to say thank you. But um, and I think it's brilliant. People like Heather Augustine are writing books about two tone wow. or two tone women and and trying to bring forward and make it relevant to today. And 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 keeping it alive, but and and uh, I'm really excited that an American publisher in Brooklyn is going to publish a, a US version of 
uh, of the book. Um, and um, yeah, I just it, did, it doesn't two turn deserve a, a doorstop. And I and I I'm lucky, uh, you know, I'm lucky the person that's put up put it all together. <laughs> Thank you for listening to In Defense of Ska. To support the show, sign up for our Patreon. Intro and outro music by Slow Gherkin from the EP Lives. Additional music by Dan P. and the Bricks. Please rate and review the podcast and tell a friend. Follow at In Defense of Ska on social media. The book In Defense of Ska by Aaron Carnes is available from Clash Books. Order it online. Chris Reeves of SPI is our editor. This is your co-host, Adam Davis of Omnigon, leading you by saying ska now more than ever. Oh, shit. <laughs> what? I didn't even know that we were done. And here we are. We're at the end of the episode. Thanks for listening to the whole thing. Did you learn a lot this time, Adam Davis? I hope you did. Did I learn a lot? Hell yeah, I did. Yeah, you. <laughs> Me. I thought you were talking about our listeners. I always learn a lot. Yeah. I'm always happy to learn something new. And you know what? If you want to learn more, there is more to learn over on our Patreon. Oh, yes. Including this episode that we have a whole back catalog of behind the curtain content, access to our Discord where you can talk to other people who care about Scott as much as you and us. And there's other perks on there as well. So sign yourself up, do yourself a solid new year, new me do it for you. You want to learn more about Scott and you will learn more about Scott by signing up to the in defense of Scott Patreon. Aaron, who do we have on the show next week. Ah, well, you know, you always love drummer guests, right? Yes, always. So we have the drummer for Jawbreaker, Adam Faller. Nice. East Bay, punk rock. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.